34. The next morning, our money being at an end, Paddy and I set out for the spike. We went southward by the old Kent Road, making for Cromley. We couldn't go to a London spike because Paddy had been in one recently and didn't care to risk going again. It was a sixteen-mile walk over asphalt, blistering to the heels, and we were acutely hungry. Paddy browsed the pavement, laying up a store of cigarette ends against his time in the spike, and in the end his perseverance was rewarded because he picked up a penny. We bought a large piece of stale bread, and we devoured it as we walked. When we got to Cromley it was too early to go to the spike, we walked several miles further to a plantation beside a meadow where one could sit down. It was a regular caravanessery of tramps. One could tell it by the worn grass and the sodden newspaper and the rusty cans that they'd left behind. Other tramps were arriving by ones and twos, and it was jolly autumn weather. Nearby, a deep bed of tansies was growing, and it seemed to me that even now... I can smell the sharp reek of those tansies, warring with the reek of tramps. In the meadow, two carthouse colts, raw sienna colour with white manes and tails, were nibbling at the gate. We sprawled about on the ground, sweaty and exhausted. Someone managed to find dry sticks and get a fire going. We all had milkless tea out of a tin drum, which we passed around. Some of the tramps began telling stories. One of them, Bill, was an interesting type, a genuinely sturdy beggar of the old breed, strong as Hercules, and a frank foe of work. He boasted that, with his great strength, he could get a navvying job at any time he liked, but as soon as he drew his first week's wages, he went on a terrific drunk and was sacked. Between whiles he mooched, chiefly from shopkeepers, and he talked like this. I ain't going far in uh, in Kent. <laughs> yeah, Kent's a tight country, Kent is. There's too many been mooching about here, you know. The effing bakers get so as they'll throw their bread away sooner than give it to you. Now, now Oxford, now that's a place for mooching Oxford is. When I was in Oxford, I mooched bread, and I mooched bacon, I mooched beef, and every night I mooched tanners for my kip off the students. Huh? The last night I was tapping short of my kip, so I goes up to a person and then mooches him for threepence, and he gives me threepence, and the next minute he turns round and gives me in charge for begging. You've been begging, the copper says. No, I ain't, I says. I was asking the gentleman the time, I says. And the copper starts feeling inside my coat, and he pulls out a pound of meat and two loaves of bread. Well, what's all this then, he says. You'd better come along to the station, he says. The beat gives me seven days, and I don't mooch for him no more. Effing Parsons. But Christ, what do I care about a lay-up of seven days? Etc., etc. It seemed that his whole life was this uh, round of mooching drunks and then layups. He laughed as he talked of it, taking it all for a tremendous joke as a whole. He looked as though he'd made a poor thing out of begging because he wore only a corduroy suit, a scarf and a cap, no socks, no linen. 
And still, he was fat and jolly, and he even smelt of beer, a most unusual smell in tramps nowadays. Two of the tramps had been in the Crumley Spike recently, and they told a ghost story connected with it. Years earlier, they said, there'd been a suicide there. A tramp had managed to smuggle a razor into his cell, and there cut his throat. In the morning, when the tramp major came round, the body was jammed against the door, and to open it, they had to break the dead man's arm. In revenge for this, the dead man haunted his cell, and anyone who slept there was certain to die within the year. And there were copious instances of it, of course. If a cell door stuck when you tried to open it, you should have avoided that cell like the plague, because that was the haunted one. Two tramps, ex-sailors, told another grisly story. A man, and they swore they knew him, had planned to stow away on a boat bound for Chile. It was laden with manufactured goods and packed in great big wooden crates. With the help of a docker, the stowaway had managed to hide himself inside one of these crates. But the docker had made a mistake about the order in which the crates were to be loaded. The crane gripped the stowaway, swung him aloft, and deposited him at the very bottom of the hold, beneath hundreds of crates. No one discovered what had happened until the end of the voyage, when they found the stowaway rotting and dead of suffocation. Another champ told the story of Gilderoy, a Scottish robber. Gilderoy was a man who was condemned to be hanged, escaped, captured the judge who had sentenced him, and, splendid fellow, hanged him. The tramps liked the story, of course, but the interesting thing was to see that they'd got it all wrong. Their version was that Gilderoy escaped to America, whereas in reality he was recaptured and put to death. The story had been amended, no doubt deliberately, just as children amend the stories of Samson and Robin Hood, giving them happy endings which are quite imaginary. This set of tramps talking about history and a very old man declared that the one-bite law was a survival from days when the nobles hunted men instead of deer. Some of the others laughed at him, but he had the idea firm in his head, and he'd heard, too, that of the corn laws and the jus prime noctis, he believed it had really existed, also of the Great Rebellion, which he thought was a rebellion of poor against rich. Perhaps he could it all mixed up with the peasant rebellions, but I doubt whether the old man could read, and certainly he was not repeating the newspaper articles. His scraps of history had been passed on from generation to generation of tramps, perhaps for centuries in some cases. It was all tradition, lingering on, like a faint echo from the Middle Ages. Paddy and I went to the spike at six in the evening, getting out at ten in the morning. It was much like Rompton and Edbury, and we saw nothing of the ghost at all. Among the casuals were two young men named William and Fred. They were ex-fishermen from Norfolk, a lively pair, and fond of singing. They had a song called Unhappy Bella, and it was worth writing down, because I heard them sing it, well, half a dozen times during the next two days, 
and I imagine to get it by heart. I managed to do that, but uh, except for a line or two, but I've guessed that. And it ran like this. Bella was young, and Bella was fair, with bright blue eyes and golden hair. Oh, unhappy Bella. Her step was light, and her heart was gay, but she had no sense, and one fine day she got herself put in the family way by a wicked, heartless, cruel deceiver. Poor Bella was young. She didn't believe that the world is hard and men deceive. Oh, unhappy Bella! She said, My man will do what's just. He'll marry me now, because he must. Her heart was full of loving trust in a wicked, heartless, cruel deceiver. She went to his house, that dirty skunk, had packed his bags and done a bunk. Oh, unhappy Bella! Her landlady said, Get out, you whore! I won't have your sort, a darkening my door. Poor Bella was put to affliction sore by a wicked, heartless, cruel deceiver. All night she tramped the cruel snows, what she must have suffered, nobody knows. Oh, unhappy Bella! And when the morning dawned so red, alas, alas, poor Bella was dead, sent so young to her lonely bed by a wicked, heartless, cruel deceiver. And so thus you see, do what you will, the fruits of sin are suffering still. Oh, unhappy Bella! As unto the grave they laid her low, the men said, Alas, but life is so. The woman chanted, sweet and low, It's all the men, the dirty bastards. Written by a woman, perhaps. William and Fred, the singers of this song, were thorough scallywags, the sort of men who get tramps a bad name. They happened to know that the tramp major at Cromley had a stock of old clothes which were to be given to need at need to casuals. And before going in, William and Fred took off their boots, ripped the seams, cut off their soles, more or less ruining them, and then they applied for two pairs of boots. And the tramp major, seeing how bad their boots were, gave them two almost new pairs. William and Fred were scarcely outside the spike in the morning before they'd sold these boots for one and ninepence. It seemed to them quite worthwhile for one and ninepence to make their own boots practically unwearable. Leaving the spike, we all started southward, a long, slouching procession for Lower Binfield and Eyed Hill. On the way there was a tramp between a fight between two tramps, and they had quarrelled overnight. There was some silly causus belly about one saying that the other was a bullshit which was taken for Bolshevik, which was a deadly insult. And they fought it out in a field. A dozen of us stayed to watch them. The scene sticks in my mind for one thing, because the man who was beaten going down in his cap falling off and showing that his hair was quite white. And after that some of us intervened and stopped the fight. Paddy had meanwhile been making inquiries and found that the real cause of the quarrel was, as usual, a few pennyworth of food. 
We got to Lower Binfield quite early, and Paddy filled in the time by asking for work at back doors. At one house he was given some boxes to chop up for firewood, and saying that he had a mate outside, he brought me in. We did the work together. When it was done, the householder told the maid to make us a cup of tea. I remember the terrified way in which she brought it out, then losing her courage, set the cups down on the path and bolted back to the house, shutting herself in the kitchen. So dreadful is the name of Tramp, that they paid us sixpence each, and we bought a threepenny loaf and half an ounce of tobacco, leaving fivepence. Paddy thought it wiser to bury our fivepence, for the Tramp Major at Lower Binfield was renowned as a tyrant, and he might refuse to admit us if we had any money at all. It was a common practice of tramps to bury their money. If they intended to smuggle at all a large sum into the spike, they generally sewed it into their clothes, which may mean prison if they're caught, of course. Paddy and Bozo used to tell a good story about this. An Irishman, Bozo said it was an Irishman, Paddy said it was an Englishman, not a tramp, and in possession of thirty pounds, was stranded in a small village where he couldn't get a bed. So he consulted a tramp who advised him to go to the workhouse. It was quite a regular proceeding, if one cannot get a bed anywhere else, to go to the workhouse, paying a reasonable sum for it. The Irishman, however, thought he would be clever and get a bed for nothing. So he presented himself at the workhouse as an ordinary casual. He'd sewn the thirty pounds into his clothes. Meanwhile, the tramp who'd advised him had seen his chance and that night had privately asked the tramp major for permission to leave the spike early in the morning, as he had to see about a job. At six in the morning he was released and went out in the Irishman's clothes. The Irishman complained of the theft and was given thirty days for going into a casual ward under false pretenses.'